you would please turn back to um, Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21. Well, if you've been with us previously, you'll have been with us on this journey as we've been traveling um, slowly at times through the book of Joshua. And as we looked at uh, chapters 13 to 19 we discovered a long narrative describing the portions of land which were allotted to each of the tribes of Israel. And if you're with us then, you may recall us noting that many of the historical books of the Old Testament, like many of those books, the book of Joshua is full of typology. Often the characters and events are shadows or pictures of spiritual realities that we face. And in in many ways, Joshua is a type. He's a picture, if you like, of Jesus conquering sin and leading his people. And so we saw also that the promised land is a type or a picture of the many blessings which God bestows on those who trust in him. Well, if you read chapters 13 to 19 carefully, you may spot a problem. Eleven tribes have been allocated their inheritance. But the tribe of Levi has not yet been given a place to live, the place which had been promised to them. And it's an omission that's highlighted by the leaders of the Levites here at the beginning of chapter 21. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. Now, if you were with us when we looked at the book of Joshua back in May, you may recall the instruction that had been given to Israel then through Moses. From chapter 14, verse 3, we're told, we were told that the Levites were not to be given an inheritance on the east bank of the Jordan. While in verse 4 of that chapter, we were told that they had no inheritance on the west bank either. But even though they're not to be given a territory to settle in, they still needed somewhere to live. And so it was that each of the other tribes were commanded to give some of their cities to the Levites together with the surrounding fields for their livestock and to grow food. Now, in verses 4 to 8 of our passage this morning, we have a summary of the cities allocated to each tribe. While in verses 9 through to 40, there's a description of the allocation in more detail, at a more granular level. And it's this arrangement that we will consider briefly together this morning. Under three headings, firstly that the Levites were positioned among the people, then that the Levites were a provision for the people, 
And then finally, that the Levites were provided for by the people. So firstly then, let's think about how the Levites were positioned among the people. And we find that in verses 3 through to 8. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pastures, lands out of their inheritance. And then there's a summary that for each of these groups of the Levites, certain tribes gave a certain number of um, cities. And you might ask a question. Why was it that the Levites were given just these cities and not a specific portion of the promised land to settle in? After all, each of the other tribes, they had a tribal land, an area to call their own. Why was it denied the Levites? Well, to consider that properly, we need to look back at two events in the history of the tribe of Levi. Firstly, we need to go back to Genesis 34, where we read that two of the sons of Jacob, Levi and Simeon, they conducted a massacre a massacre of the Shechemites. And they did so in revenge for the improper treatment of their sister, Dinah. But this wasn't measured justice that they were exercising. It was a hot-headed response by two impetuous young men. But it's something that had lasting consequences because as a punishment the tribes descended from these two impetuous men were to be scattered among the others. And Jacob foretold this in his last words, which are recorded in Genesis 49. You see, as his life came to an end, Jacob gathered his sons together to bless them. But unlike their brothers, these two men, Levi and Simeon, didn't receive a blessing from their dying father. Rather, he cursed them. For in Genesis 49, verse 7, we read Jacob saying this, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that's precisely what happened. The tribe of Simeon became insignificant and settled within the land allotted to Judah. While the tribe of Levi, as we read this morning, was scattered throughout all the other 11 tribes. Now if we turn back to this passage we've read this morning in verses 4 to 7, we realize that uh, the Levites were a bit like the Scots. You know, if you, if you meet people from Scotland, uh, you find that many have the same surname. There are the MacLeods and the Mackenzies, the MacDonalds and the Mackays, and we have our own Campbells within the church here. They share certain family names because they're members of different clans. Well, in the same way, the tribe of Levi was divided into three different clans. In verses 4 and 5, we read of the Kohathites, who were allocated 23 cities 
certain of the other tribes of Israel. And in verse 7, we read of the uh, Gershurites who were allocated 13 cities from four more tribes. And then finally, in verse 6, we read of the Merorites who were allocated 12 cities from the three remaining tribes. So you see, Jacob's prophecy became true. Levi was scattered within Israel. But this isn't the whole story. For the second important event in the history of the tribe of Levi is found in Exodus chapter 32. And there we read the account of the golden calf. You may recall that Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai where the Lord gave him the law written with the finger of God on two tablets of stone. Well, Moses delayed returning and the people waiting below became impatient and they ended up rebelling against God and worshipped an idol in the form of the golden calf. And when Moses returned, he asked a direct and very pointed question. Who is on the Lord's side? And we read in Exodus 32, verse 26, that all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And then following this, Moses tells the sons of Levi to execute justice on those who had rebelled. And we read that 3,000 men fell that day. But then Moses makes a startling declaration in Exodus 32, verse 29. This is what he said. Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that the Lord might bestow a blessing upon you this day. One commentator makes this observation. Levi slew the men of Shechem in his anger, but his sons slew the men at Mount Sinai out of zeal for God's holiness. So you see, the outward actions were identical, but the motives behind them were very different. What change had come about in the line of Levi? Unfettered rage had become devotion to God. And in response to this, Moses declared that the Lord will bless the tribe of Levi. And we come to see that this blessing was that they became the priests and support staff for the tabernacle and later for the temple in Jerusalem. And that brings us to our first point of application this morning. Don't these two events demonstrate what a radical difference the Lord can make in a people's heart. When the question was asked by Moses, who is on the Lord's side, there was no hesitation, was there? Impetuous, uncontrolled, cruel anger had become zeal for God. And the transformation of the tribe of Levi is just a picture 
of how the Lord can transform the lives of you and me. Down through the years, countless Christians can testify of the change that God's Spirit has made to their lives. Some are dramatic and some less so. But nevertheless, a change occurs when we are united in faith to the Lord Jesus. And one such example was John Newton. John Newton had a Christian mother, but as he grew up, he had no time for God. He went to sea and became a successful slave trader. But one day in 1748, his ship was in such a fierce storm that it was about to sink. And in desperation, he prayed to the Lord for mercy. God answered his prayer. And by the time the ship reached port, John was a believer, trusting in God for his salvation. Now that change wasn't overnight, but eventually the slave trader became a campaigner for the abolition of the slave trade along with William Wilberforce. What brought about that change? Well, John Newton tells us himself in a very well-known quote. This is what he said. I am not yet what I ought to be. I'm not yet what I want to be. I'm not yet what I hope to be one day. Yet though I am not what I ought to be and not what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say that I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, John Newton prayed to the Lord, and by the grace of God, his life was transformed. By the grace of God, the heart of a wicked and godless slave trader was changed. And likewise, the tribe of Levi were transformed by the grace of God. Angry and cruel young men were changed by the grace of God into loyal followers of their Lord. And as they were changed, they answered the call, who is on the Lord's side? And in in, in, in connection with that, they received a special blessing from God, which was to live their lives serving him as they lived among uh, their fellow countrymen. And this raises a question, doesn't it? What about you? How would you answer the question, who is on the Lord's side? And as you reflect on your own heart, can you echo the words of John Newton? None of us perfect, but can you say, I am not what I once was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, we've seen how the Levites came to be positioned among the people. So this brings us to our second point, which is to see how they provided for the people. We've just seen that the Levites received a special blessing from God, which was to live their lives serving the Lord. 
And details of how they did that uh, are given in Numbers chapter 4. And there we find that the family of Aaron, who were half of that Kohathite clan, they were the priests who made sacrifices and offered prayers. And then the remainder of the Kohathite clan, they were responsible for looking after the artifacts in the tabernacle used for the worship there. And then the other two clans, well, they were involved in the heavy lifting as the tabernacle was moved through the wilderness and then on into promised land. The Gershonites carried the coverings and curtains while the Marathites carried the wooden frame that held the tabernacle up. But now the Israelites were settled in the land. The tabernacle didn't have to move anymore. And so you see, most of the Levites, they were no longer needed in the removal business. But they weren't redundant. For in Deuteronomy 33, Moses had made it clear that the Levites were also to teach the law of God to the people. Do you see now the wisdom in allocating the Levites in these 48 cities throughout the rest of the tribes. The 48 cities were places where God's word could be explained. The 48 cities were where God's people could be taught about their Lord. So you see, because the Levites have been scattered in this way, the curse pronounced by Jacob had become a blessing to God's people. Every one of God's people had an opportunity to hear the truth about their God. They learned that he was a great and awesome and powerful God. They learned that he was faithful, that he was wise, and he had looked after and cared for his people. And so, you see, as the tribes settled down in their new homes they were experiencing the fulfillment of a promise made by God 400 years previously. And what a wonderful provision the Lord made for them. Lest they forget the God who had brought them there and given them all these good things. His people were given servants to explain and remind them of these amazing truths. So who do the Levites point us to here in this passage? Who are they a pattern or a shadow of? Who are they a picture of people today? Well, surely they don't, don't they point us to the servants that God has appointed to teach his church? Those people who've had their own lives transformed by God's grace and now have been placed Among the people, there are these people who remind us week in and week out of what an infinite and eternal and unchangeable and holy and great and powerful and just God we have. They point us to our ministers, don't they? But there's more, because if we turn to verses 9 to 39 in our passage we have this detailed list of all these 48 cities. 
And within this list, we find six, six cities that we've met before. Hebron in verse 13, Shechem in verse 27, Golan in verse 27, uh, 20, sorry, Shechem in 21, Golan in verse 27, Kedesh in verse 32, Beza in verse 36, and Ramoth in verse 38. Where have we come across them before? Well, last time we were looking at the book of Joshua, we found them in chapter 20 in verses 7 and 8. And we were told that these were six cities set apart for a special purpose because they're the cities of refuge. And if you were with us last time, perhaps you remember what we learnt about these cities. You may recall that the The manslayer was a picture or a type of each one of us. Like the manslayer, we have offended God, even if we haven't consciously set out to do so. Like the manslayer, we have to face the consequences of our offense, which we call sin. Like the manslayer, the consequence of our sin is not the anger of a wronged relative, not like Levi, but it's the totally reasonable justice of God. And like the manslayer, this justice is not a trifling matter, for there are serious consequences. And like the manslayer, our only hope is to run as fast as we can to the city of refuge. And in this way, we saw that the cities of refuge are again a picture or a type pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the place, indeed the only place, where we can escape the consequence of our sin and rebelling against God. And we saw how these cities of refuge not only provided safety, but they gave food and shelter, visions, a place to call home. The cities of refuge pointed us to Christ, the one who loves us and provides for us, not only with the forgiveness of sin, but also purpose and belonging. Indeed, everything that we need in this life. So you see how appropriate it is that these cities of refuge were also cities of the Levites. The teachers of the people were the custodians of the place of refuge. And isn't that true today in the church? It's in the church from the mouth of our minister that we will hear about the place of refuge. It's from our minister that we hear the only place where we can escape from the consequence of our sin. Not only that, but as we gather week in, week out, under the preaching, under the teaching from our minister, that we hear and we find the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And it's under that ministry that we find the Lord Jesus who provides us with purpose and belonging and indeed everything that we need in life. What's the practical application of this? 
Well, surely it's to value the ministry that God places among us. And it's to make use of that ministry so we better understand the God whom we serve. And it's to place ourselves under that ministry so we don't forget how God fulfilled his promise to save his people, and supremely so, through the gift of his only beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen how the Levites placed among the people, and we see how the Levites were a provision for the people, but we turn finally to see how the Levites were provided for by the people. Let's look back at verse 3 here in chapter 21. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now, right at the beginning of chapter 21, there is a little word which is significant. It's the word then. What's the significance of it? Well, the word highlights that by this point in chapter 21, the allocations of the land to all the other tribes have already taken place. So you see, it wasn't the case that um, Joshua and Eliezer had allocated land to each of the tribes, but kept back 48 cities to give to the Levites. They weren't the leftovers after allocating land to the other tribes. The word then is significant because it highlights that it was the people in the other tribes who gave the cities and the land to the Levites out of the inheritance they already received. And that's what we're told in verse 3, isn't it? The children of Israel gave to the Levites. So you see, the Levites ministered to the people and the people provided for the Levites. And this Old Testament pattern is repeated in the New Testament. Paul reminds the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9 that as an apostle and minister of the gospel, he should be provided for. And to support this, he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul makes the point that it's not just the oxen who are worthy of being fed. A.W. Pink comments, If God be solicitous about the welfare of animals and requires that they be treated justly and kindly, is God indifferent as to how his honoured servants be dealt with? What's the practical application for us then of these other tribes providing for the Levites? Well, it's easier for me to say because our minister is away, isn't it? What's the practical application? Well, to quote Paul, we shouldn't muzzle the ox. Or to quote Pink, we shouldn't be treating our, we should be treating our minister justly and kindly. If you want a practical application, at the simplest level, it's to use the bank details or the QR code on your service sheet. 
It's to provide financial support about what God has already entrusted to you. But that's not all. Babysitting services, a solicitor's concern for the welfare of our minister and his family. These are other aspects of the same responsibility we have. See, the people provided for the Levites who ministered to them. And we too need to provide for the men who are called to minister to us. But there's one further point that I think is worth noting. And we find it in this little section 9 through to 11 in chapter 21. Uh, You notice when I read, I said that the the verses 4 to 8 sort of give a summary, an overview of how the cities were allocated to each tribe. And then in um, verses 9, well, going going from 9 onwards, we began to... um, we just started looking at the, the individual cities which were given, uh, but we, we just stopped after that first one. Look at what it says in, um, well, let's just read from verse 9. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Kohathites who belonged to the people of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. And this, this is what it says. They gave to them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak. That is Hebron in the hill country of Judah along with the pasture lands round about it. The significance of Hebron was that before all the other allocations of land had taken place to all the other tribes of Israel, Hebron had been given to Caleb. And if you know the story, you may know, remember that uh, the story of these spies, before the children of Israel went into the land of Israel, spies went in to spy the land. And they came back with a mixed report. They reported that it was a wonderful land, this promised land. It was a land full of abundant produce. It was a land they described as flowing with milk and honey. But it was also a land with a strong army. And indeed, uh, the report came back that the Israelites were like grasshoppers compared to this army. And the spies' report provoked dismay in the people and it ultimately led to a rebellion which then led to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness but despite this there were two spies two spies who stood firm in their faith two two men who maintained that God would deliver on his promise and those two men were Joshua and Caleb And in recognition of his faithfulness, Caleb was given a right to Hebron, which he then had to capture. This then was the city that had been given to Caleb by the Lord as a special trophy. It was a city which he had to fight to possess. It was a city that he made his own. One commentator sums it up like this. God's faithful spy claimed his land, 
fought for his land, and then he donated it to the Levites. Caleb is probably worth a study in himself, but you can't help wonder if he and Joshua had a unique perspective on the way God had fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham. Remember all the others, they had perished in the wilderness over 40 years. They balked at the promise of entering the land and then they had perished for it. These two men alone had seen how God had delivered them from Egypt, led them through the wilderness, provided for their every need, given them water and food, and how God had then led them and defeated every enemy along the way. Who else but Caleb and Joshua could appreciate how they had been given peace in that land which was described as flowing with milk and honey? Who else but Caleb could wonder at how patiently God had endured the rebellion and faithlessness of his people through all those years? Who else but Caleb could have wondered at how gracious God had been given the hard-heartedness that the Israelites had shown over so many years? Who else but Caleb could have such an appreciation of God's undeserved goodness to them? Who else but Caleb could appreciate the grace that God had shown to this sinful people? Is it not possible that because of his appreciation of just how much grace God had shown to him, that Caleb was moved to give up his special trophy to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 14, the Apostle Paul reflects on the surpassing grace that had been shown by God to the believers in Corinth. And in response, he cries out, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Friends, how about you? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, your word enlightens us to spiritual realities. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder in your word uh, this morning of your gratefulness in fulfilling your promise to your people all those years ago, in spite of their hard-heartedness, in spite of the fact that they were stiff-necked people, in spite of their rebellion. Lord, we thank you for the example of the grace which was shown to them. We thank you, Lord, too, for the way in which you transformed the tribe of Levi uh, from cruel and angry young men 
to faithful servants of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we reflect upon your grace and your goodness to us to be moved to love you and serve you in devotion. And then when the cry comes out, who is on the Lord's side? We pray, Lord, that we might be eager to be counted among them. So, Lord, undertake for us, we pray. And continue, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.